Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Our friend, the always entertaining, informative, and sometimes controversial Dr. Stephen Gundry is back on the show to discuss his latest must-read book, The Energy Paradox, What to Do When Your Get Up and Go Has Got Up and Gone. Now that's a title I'm definitely interested in hearing more about. It's great to have him back on the show. Dr. Gundry, welcome. So great to have you back. Thanks to have me back. It's great to see you again, Jason. So another must read, extraordinarily timely, The Energy Paradox, What to Do When Your Get Up and Go Has Got Up and Gone. By the way, I love that subtitle, What to Do When Your Get Up and Go Has Got Up and Gone. As I mentioned, it is timely. Fatigue, low energy seems to be a problem we all have. How do we get here? I think we've come to think that our modern lifestyle somehow fatigue and low energy and getting through the day, powering through the day is something that we have come to expect as normal. And that's why coffee was invented and energy drinks. But in fact, if you look traditional societies, long live societies, hunter gatherer societies, many of them actually don't even have a word to describe being tired or being fatigued. And so uh, one of the, I think, striking things that uh, I described in actually the longevity paradox and again now in the energy paradox is the study of the Hadzas, who are a hunter-gatherer group in Tanzania. And there was a study a few years ago that I think sets the stage for all this. Uh, they studied the energy expenditure of these hunter-gatherers, and the men walk 8 to 10 miles every day. The women walk 3, 5 miles every day gathering things. And they compared them to a bunch of sedentary office workers. And the researchers were, of course, expecting to find that these hunter-gatherers, fit individuals, thin, healthy, were expending lots of energy, uh, much more than the office workers. And imagine their shock when they found out that the office workers are expending the exact same amount of energy that these hunter-gatherers did. And you go, and they concluded that all human beings expend the same amount of energy and that's it. And you go, wait a minute, that, that doesn't pass the sniff test. So when you actually look at the energy expenditure of office workers, yeah, they're expending the same amount of energy as these hunter-gatherers, but they're expending energy on inflammation. And inflammation is rampant in our culture, as I go into the, in the book, and inflammation is basically war. And we're saving and giving energy to our troops, our immune system, our white blood cells. And they get number one rating. So if you're in a war, you're going to take food and energy from muscles, you're gonna take it from the brain, and you're gonna devote it to this war effort. And that is a huge amount of energy that's not available to muscles or the brain. And that's one of the big problems in our modern lifestyle. And as I talk about in the book, it actually stems from leaky gut. It all comes back to leaky gut, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> it, it really does. And I've talked about this now for so long. If you had asked me probably 15 years ago, you know, what I thought about leaky gut, would have probably told you it was pseudoscience. In fact, I probably did say it was pseudoscience. But now, thanks to efforts by uh, Dr. Vazano from Harvard and others, I guess including me, uh, and the tests that have been developed to actually measure leaky gut, I can say that 100% of the people I see with fatigue or tiredness uh, have leaky gut uh, as the basis of their problem. So you, know, you mentioned modern lifestyle, and in the book, you talk about there's some pretty egregious examples when it comes to modern lifestyle. You, you go as far as calling them the seven deadly energy disruptors. So can you briefly summarize the seven deadly energy disruptors? Yeah, as, as I had seven deadly disruptors in the plant paradox, and I've 
changed those disruptors. A few of them are the same, but I've added some uh, to energy disruption. Number one still is broad spectrum antibiotics. Most of us really forget, and I'm old enough to remember, that broad spectrum antibiotics came out in the mid-1970s. And they were miraculous because before we had to figure out what bacteria was causing something, figure out what antibiotic would work against it, and this would take days to figure out if we could at all. But when broad spectrum antibiotics came out, they killed everything. It was like throwing a bomb on it, and we didn't have to think. And so they became ubiquitous. We loved them, but we didn't realize that not only did they kill the bacteria we thought it was going to kill, but it killed everything else, including all of our gut microbiome, those hundred trillion bacteria that live in our gut. And it was like throwing napalm on a tropical rainforest. And little did we know, because, you know, we thought way back when that the gut was just a hollow tube that you put carbohydrates, fats, and proteins into, and you absorb them, and maybe a few vitamins, and whatever was left over was crap that you pooped out into the toilet. And that was what we thought. Eh, not so much. We now know that the microbiome is probably the number one driver of energy production that I talk about in the book. So that's number one. Uh, number two, almost identical timing, glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup, not only was introduced, but has now been used on almost all of our conventional crops as a desiccating agent to, let, to make harvesting easier. So not only is it associated with GMO crops, where everybody kind of thinks it is, but it's now used on almost all of our wheat, all of our oats, all of our soybeans, all of our canola. It's used in almost all vineyards up until recently. So our culture is awash with glyphosate. And little do most people know that glyphosate was patented as an antibiotic. It is an antibiotic against the world. And it kills our bacteria as well. And striking news, it causes leaky gut all by itself, doesn't need any help from any of the rest. It will actually produce breaks in our intestinal lining. And so glyphosate is a real mischief maker. There are other obvious examples. One that I think is fascinating in energy is the class of antacids, acid-reducing drugs that are called proton pump inhibitors. Things like Nexium, Prilosec, Protonic. These were miraculous for preventing ulcers when they were introduced, and I remember when they were introduced, but little did we know that proton pumping not only happens when we produce acid in our stomach, but proton pumping is actually how mitochondria produce energy, ATP. And little did we know that a Nexium or a Prilosec would actually slow down or prevent proton pumps in mitochondria in our heart, in our brain, and so all in the name of, get, of helping not get a little acid reflux or indigestion, we've been popping these things. They're the second highest non-prescription drug there is and killing our mitochondrial function. And so it's no wonder that dementia now is highly associated with long-term use of these as well as congestive heart failure. So one of the easy things to do is please throw these proton pump inhibitors in, in the trash. Another big one that I've mentioned before is blue light and exposure to blue light. And you and I know, any of us now, unfortunately, are exposed almost all waking hours to intense blue light, whether we know it or not, in our phones, in our computers, in our lighting above us. And blue light actually turns on hunger and suppresses sleep. So if you wanted to design a perfect cause of bad outcomes, blue light is one of the best things you could do. In fact, many of us used to write that Edison is the cause of almost all modern diseases. And 
Sadly, I may be right about this. So getting a good set of blue light blocking glasses, and there's several good ones out there right now. Blue Blocks is one of them. Yaw Optics is another. Even Dave Asprey, our friend, has a line that he's invested in. So there's a plug, Dave. So that's another one. Then I, I go pretty hard on fructose in the book. And I spend a, a lot of time trying to convince people that fructose is one of the best energy disruptors that you could ever design. Now, table sugar is half fructose. High fructose corn syrup, which is in everything, is 55% fructose, 45% glucose. Fruit is full of fructose. And there are some really high fructose fruits out there that seem innocuous, but just to give an example, one cup of seedless grapes has more sugar and more fructose than an entire Hershey's candy bar. And of the two, I can tell you which one I would rather eat, probably neither, but, and yet we we call this stuff nature's candy, and it's named nature's candy for a really good reason. And as I show in the book, fructose actually robs you of ATP production in multiple ways. And we now have fructose to blame for this epidemic of fatty liver disease. Uh, most people walking around unknowingly have foie gras for a liver, and I don't want foie gras for my liver. So that's just another example. All the new environmental pollutants, chemicals that I've talked about before, almost ad nauseum, is one of really the best ways to, again, impact mitochondrial function. There's a new report out last week that phthalates, which I've talked about before, which are in plastics, now there's an epidemic of low sperm count, of abnormal sperm, of small penises in men from phthalate use, uh, particularly in women who eat a lot of chicken during their pregnancy. And chicken is loaded with phthalates. And wow, what, what a mess we've done. We have. And so you mentioned mitochondria and ATP. And it, can we do a primer on mitochondria and why it's so critical when it comes to our energy and also what can we do to ensure our mitochondria are healthy and thriving and functioning and all, doing all that we need them to do. Yeah, so mitochondria, just uh, for a quick primer, are actually ancient engulfed bacteria. Two billion years ago, a precursor to our modern cell decided to eat a bacteria. And that bacteria, in exchange for living in a nice environment, exchanged the production of energy, ATP, for being fed, if you will. And it's actually the precursor of all modern cells, the eukaryocyte. So bacteria are actually genetically bacteria. They have their own DNA, they reproduce on their own, they can reproduce without the cell dividing. And it turns out that we inherit all of our initial bacteria from our mother. And we inherit all of our mitochondrial DNA from our mother. And as I've talked about before and really expand in the energy paradox, the microbiome, our bacteria, literally talk to their sisters, the mitochondria. And when we finish with this, we'll talk about postbiotics and the language. So what mitochondria do, simplistically, is there is a racetrack, an inner and outer membrane in mitochondria, where we jokingly say the only purpose of life is to take one electron and change its charge higher and higher and to take one protein and change its heart charge, and that's the purpose of life. In the mitochondrial membrane, protons and electrons are running down, bouncing around inside a mitochondrial membrane. I call it a game of hot potato. They're hot and they keep getting passed along. At the end of this long hallway where everybody's getting anxious, it's almost like going to a club and the music is throbbing and you're looking for an exit. Down at the end of the door, there's a circular door, a revolving door that says exit. And 
the protons and the electrons are scurrying down the door and the protons, as they push the door, much like a water makes a water wheel go around to produce energy, that going through the revolving door, ATPase produces ATP from AMP and ADP. And in a long story short, that's how you make energy. Now, as a part of this, you gotta have carbon atoms arrive for this processing and you have to have oxygen. The carbon atoms arrive in one of three ways, either from the sugars, the carbohydrates we eat, glucose, or the proteins we eat as amino acids, or as fats, fatty acids. And as I talk about in the book, and you so ripely show in all of your work, back when we ate whole foods, literally whole, which not too many people do anymore, we broke down these sugars slowly, we broke down these amino acids, slow, uh, proteins slowly into amino acids, and fats are absorbed in a really weird, bizarre way that take a long time. And energy processing in the mitochondria would happen using sugar first, followed by amino acids, and last but not least, fatty acids. And these would all arrive in a really nice order. And the mitochondria are really good at taking one sort of substrate and making energy. And maybe we'll touch on that at the end. But now with our modern processed, ultra-processed foods, energy bars, drinks, all these substances literally arrive for processing in our mitochondria freeways simultaneously. And what we've seen is literal mitochondrial gridlock, that it's rush hour in our mitochondria. And just like rush hour, all this basically grinds to a halt. And we have some amazing defense mechanisms to protect our mitochondria from getting whacked. And as I talk about in the book, insulin resistance is actually an innate mechanism to try and protect mitochondria from this incredible overload. And I go into why that happens and just for a teaser, believe it or not, you gotta have fructose to make a fat called palmitate that we use as literally a buffer of things getting into our cells for processing. And inadvertently, with our high fructose diet, we've created insulin resistance. Which leads to all sorts of bad things. All sorts yeah. of bad things. And let me continue with that thought, if, you, if I may. So normally, uh, and I've written about this really since day one, normally insulin goes up to handle sugars and proteins and to literally open the door into cells and let them in to, for processing to the mitochondria. And when insulin is elevated, it makes a enzyme called lipoprotein lipase that turns these ingredients into fat when the mitochondria can't handle it. So higher insulin level, the easier it is to make fat. Now, if you stop eating, if you go fasting, one would hope that immediately all that fat you stored could come out of the fat cells and be processed in your mitochondria. Sounds like a great idea. But there's an enzyme that does that, and it's called hormone-sensitive lipase. Now, hormone-sensitive, hmm, wonder what hormone-sensitive lipase is sensitive to? Insulin. So when insulin's elevated, hormone-sensitive lipase is turned off, and most of us, 80% of us walking around have elevated insulin levels. I did when I started this 21 years ago. And you could stop eating and you couldn't get to all that fat because insulin is blocking you from getting to your fat. And that's why so many people fall flat on their faces when they start a, like a ketogenic diet or time-restricted eating because they got plenty of fat, it's water everywhere and not a drop to drink. You can't get to it. And the book, In the Energy Paradox, I give people a step-by-step -step way to get to that fat easily without falling on your face. So I wanna come back to mitochondria and specifically postbiotics. I love postbiotics, I think they're the future. We all know, talk about probiotics, 
pre prebiotics, but not a lot on postbiotics. And I think it is very interesting and the future in so many ways. And so do you. So, so let's go to postbiotics. Yeah, I spend a lot of time getting excited in the energy paradox about postbiotics. So everybody knows probiotics, particularly your listeners. Let's call them friendly bacteria. I call them gut buddies. One of the important things we have to realize is that you could swallow all the probiotics in the world, but if you don't give them the things they want to eat, they're not going to grow and make postbiotics. So Postbiotics are compounds, including short-chain fatty acids, like butyrate, for example, which is miraculous in its own right, but also now what are called gasotransmitters or gasomessengers. And for years, we've conjectured that the microbiome talks to their sisters, the mitochondria. We've thought that this was possible, but we didn't know how they talked to them. We just knew they did. Imagine everyone's surprise when a few years ago, this language, which is now called the trans kingdom language between the microbiome and the mitochondria and other parts of the cell was discovered. In fact, won the Nobel Prize for medicine a few years ago. So we now have a huge array of gases that are postbiotic language that literally tell mitochondria to produce energy. And simultaneously, if these gases aren't produced, it actually tells mitochondria to throttle back on energy production. And some of these are, I mean, are fascinating. For instance, hydrogen gas. Um, hydrogen is the smallest molecule. It diffuses instantly from our gut into our bloodstream. Hydrogen, the Hindenburg folks, that's... Uh, and some really amazing research, primarily out of Korea and Japan and China, shows that if you look at people with Parkinson's uh, dementia and Parkinson's disease, and look at their gut microbiome, they do not produce hydrogen gas in their gut microbiome. Whereas if you look at normal people, they have a gut microbiome that produces hydrogen gas. And you go, wow, you know, that's interesting. What would happen if we had Parkinson's patients drink hydrogen water, which is literally hydrogen dissolved in water, and lo and behold, their mild cognitive impairment, their, their Parkinson's symptoms get better just by the reintroduction of hydrogen gas. So there's other gases like hydrogen sulfide, uh, the rotten egg smell. We were taught that this was a toxic gas, that it'll kill you. It was thought that's how sewer workers got sick, but it turns out that hydrogen sulfide is actually an amazing component that mitochondria can use to make energy. So hydrogen sulfide gas is one of those hermetic effects where none is bad, some is good, and a lot is really bad. And so we can go on and on. Methane, the gas that cows fart, believe it or not, we make lots of methane. And methane is a gasotransmitter that tells mitochondria what to do. Wow. So yeah, so it is a wow. And in terms of I'm going grocery shopping right now, and I'm sold on postbiotics. What are some of your favorite and we talked about the power of eating real food, whole food. What are some of your favorite sources in terms of postbiotics? So any of the inulin containing foods are right up there on my wish list. And they're actually pretty easy to find. Radicchio, which some people call Italian red lettuce. It's that r red and white ball that's in almost all grocery stores. Chicory, Jerusalem artichokes, sometimes called sunchokes. I eat them peeled with olive oil, just like candy almost. Shouldn't use that word. Um, it's candy for my gut buddies, that's what I should say. Belgian endive, almost all stores have Belgian endive. So that's easy. Number two, tubers are great sources of these resistant starches. And a trick that I talk about in the book is please, when you're using resistant starches, like sweet potatoes or yams, cook them, roast them, then allow them to cool, and then reheat them. And the process of cooling and then reheating actually makes 
much more of the starch resistant. Now, what's a resistant starch? It's resistant to our digesting it into sugar. And so more of it arrives far, farther downstream in our gut for our gut buddies. And fun fact, the best resistant starch out there is actually a purple sweet potato, the potato that is 85% of the diet of Okinawans. But the key is, and they're now coming into lots of grocery stores, they're not just unusual things. Roast your purple sweet potato, throw it in the refrigerator, bring it out the next day, reheat it. You will turn almost 50% of that sweet potato into resistant starch using that method. No pressure cooker, huh? So sweet potatoes don't need a pressure cooker, but if you're going to use beans or if you're going to use rice, and believe it or not, I allow red rice and black rice for a totally different reason in this book, melatonin production, pressure cook them. And I even post on Instagram me eating beans, and it, I'm sure drives my critics crazy. <laughs> but there's now two companies that pressure cook their beans, Eden and Jovial, like I'm a Jovial fellow. And just pressure cook them and you'll be fine. So on the subject of grocery shopping and eating real food, fiber. You talk a lot about fiber in the book and you provide some great history on fiber too, which I thought was interesting. So give us a little synopsis on the history of fiber and, and why it's so critical. Yeah, the long and short, short of fiber is there was an English surgeon who was actually sent down to Africa to do missionary work. And he was a colon surgeon looking for colon cancer and hemorrhoids. And when he got down there, nobody had colon cancer and hemorrhoids. And he was kind of had lots of time on his hand. And he began to study Africans. And he became fascinated with poop, with bowel movements. And these folks literally had giant termite mound worth of, of bowel movements. And he goes, wow, you know, what's the deal with this? And maybe it's the fiber that they're eating and all their tubers that is somehow preventing colon cancer. And he got fascinated with this and went back to England and fell in with a few other folks who said, well, yeah, it's all because of the fiber that they're eating. And England, quite frankly, didn't have a lot of fibrous foods. Well, they had tons of grain fiber, oat fiber, wheat bran, and nobody knew, well, fiber is fiber is fiber. So he was actually, uh, and his ilk were one of the real fathers of telling people to eat insoluble fiber, which if you want a lectin load, insoluble fiber is the way to tear up your gut and, and really miss the point what these Africans were eating was soluble fiber. And that, unfortunately, cereal companies ran with this whole idea. And so for 100 years, we've actually gotten the wrong fiber message. And so please throw away your high brand, high fiber cereal. You're eating the wrong stuff and re eat real fiber-containing foods. Yeah, let's unpack that. In terms of fiber, how much do we really need? And I'll come back to sources. What are the best sources? It's clearly not store-bought cereal. Yeah, so typical hunter-gatherers probably consume 130 to 150 grams of fiber a day. There's some fascinating work that I talk about with ancient remains in the southwest uh, United States and Mexico, where these tribes were eating upwards of 150 grams of fiber, primarily from cactus, not so long ago. The average American, if we're lucky, is getting maybe 20 grams of fiber. And for most of it, it's actually the wrong form of fiber. It's non-soluble fiber. It's the bad stuff. So what is so, the good stuff? So, I mean, you can find fiber in all sorts of easy places. Some of the things I just mentioned are great sources of fiber. Avocado, believe it or not, has a lot of fiber. Nuts have a lot of fiber. Uh, macadamia. Not, well, I'm going to call you out. So one, I'm going to stop there. So avocado, I think he made a lot of, I think Santa Claus is coming for Christmas because as I pointed out, Walter Longo on this show once said he was skeptical about avocados. I was like, what? You just told me there's no Santa Claus. So Dr. Gundry's confirming avocados 
<laughs> Eat your avocados. They are a fruit, but hey, it's the legal fruit from Dr. Gundry. I, I, I just want to clarify, on, as we're on nuts, because I know cashews and peanuts, you're not a fan. So let's just clarify. If you're going to talk about nuts, I want some specifics. Yeah. So cashews are not a peanut is a legume. They're, neither one of them are nuts. I can't tell you the number of people, even recently, we took cashews away from a young lady and lo and behold her autoimmune disease that was the troublemaker but we could talk about that forever uh so yeah so pistachios go right to the number one nut on my list and that's because on a totally different subject pistachios have far more melatonin than any other food beverage liquid known to mankind i mean stratospherically high in melatonin and you actually want to get melatonin in your diet because it turns out that melatonin may be the most important antioxidant in mitochondria. They're so, melatonin is so important that mitochondria will actually manufacture melatonin, but they'd much rather get it from outside sources. And strange but true, as I talk about in the energy paradox, a lot of the things that we've attributed to the, mel to the Mediterranean diet as being healthy, like olive oil, for instance, like red wine with resveratrol, for instance, it turns out that probably the benefit is that these are remarkable sources of melatonin. And it's probably the melatonin these things rather than the polyphenols that were the big important part in the diet. And big difference from the melatonin that we're all taking at night to go to sleep? Yeah, well, there's actually, there's a, a lot of exciting work done in high dose melatonin for salvaging mitochondria. And I have now a number of patients and one of my elderly dogs who I'm dosing with 20 to 40 milligrams of melatonin a day, and they do not get sleepy, and their brains wake up, and it's, we got melatonin all wrong. But don't try that at home, because you may uh, <laughs> need, need 10 to 12 cups of coffee during the so, day. Don't tell my dog this. All good elderly. for dogs. I have an elderly Labradoodle who now takes 24 milligrams of melatonin a day and just is doing great. But for a human... I... So I have some humans with <laughs> late stage dementia that are actually beginning to perk up with high dose melatonin. It's actually staggering to me. Don't try this at home without your physician or somebody interested in functional medicine guiding you. But I'm actually, after writing this book, I'm incredibly excited about melatonin okay so eat, eat your melatonin eat your melatonin so we're so we've got our nuts hey i, I like i'm a huge fan of resveratrol but i also take it in my red wine what what else is on your your good fiber list so psyllium seeds please try some psyllium seeds it's easy to get fiber into you flax seeds another great source of fiber grind them up everybody realize Please buy whole flax seeds and grind them daily. Don't buy the ground up stuff. It goes rancid very quickly. If you do buy the ground up stuff, please buy it out of a refrigerator case and keep it in your refrigerator. That's a little trick. So something you, else you touch on that you call the paradox of mono diets, which, which I think is so critical. And many of our listeners, myself included in the past, you get, you get excited about a certain diet, you see great results, and it becomes uh, religion. And ultimately, mono diets, what you call mono diets, uh, not necessarily good for the microbiome and our long-term health. And I think that's important. And look, there's no one-size-fits-all approach. And for some people, you got to do what you got to do. But can you unpack the paradox of mono diets? Yeah, actually, there was a fascinating book a few years ago, the the great gluten lie, and it's sitting on my shelf someplace up here. Uh, there it is, by Alan Lev Levitz, and he makes a diet in the book called the Unpacket Diet. Since uh, you meant you mentioned that, and and what he does is the Unpacket Diet basically he throws away all plastic and you unpack all your food and never see plastic again. And then what he does, he 
puts all these quotes of, oh, this is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. This diet is was marvelous and everything. And then he, and so we go, wow, this is, this is the diet, this is the diet I have to do. And then he says, I fooled you. All of these quotes are from experts, book writers who are saying this in their book to describe their vegan diet, their Adkins diet, their carnivore diet, their uh, keto diet. Surprise, every one of those can't be right. And so he says, the joke's on you guys. Well, it turns out the joke isn't on, on everybody. And I've mused about this in a number of my books, and I don't like to throw my co-authors under buses. And so, as I talk about in The Energy Paradox, you can look at the Duke Rice diet, which basically all you do is eat rice. You can look at the cabbage soup diet. You can look at the Adkins diet, where basically in the good old days, you ate mostly fat and some meat. You can look at the carnivore diet, where you basically eat meat. Uh, you can look at a vegan diet, where all you eat is primarily carbohydrates, the low-fat vegan diet. And you can see really good results with every one of these diets. And you go, well, why is that? They're so diametrically opposed. Well, what I posit in the book is if you give mitochondria, in general, one energy source to work with, that the mitochondria will do extremely well with that energy source. Give them carbohydrates, the Duke diet, it'll work as long as that's all you do. The Atkins diet worked, and the South Beach diet worked really well in phase one when all you did is basically eat fat or protein. But when you re-added a second ingredient, in most cases carbohydrates, Everything kind of fell apart. People started gaining weight. And what do they say to do? Go back to phase one, where you're only eating one thing. So as I explain in the book, let's learn from that. And what I like to do, because our mitochondria uh, are overworked and underpowered. So what I do in the book is the first meal of the day, your break fast, which I propose extending slowly each day at a time, a little bit later in the day, in the morning, make your first meal a mono meal. So whether you want to have puff millet with low-fat almond milk, whether you want to have an egg white omelet, which is pure protein, whether you want a shrimp cake, which is pure protein, which I have recipes in the book for, you will actually give your mitochondria only one substance to work with. And it's a great way to use a monodiet to good utility. Now, like you mentioned, most monodiets fail miserably unless you're, like you said, develop re religious zeal about that diet. And they fail for boredom. They fail because many of them don't foster a healthy uh, gut microbiome. And we could go into that subject all day. But so, but we can utilize that trick, which clearly works, to start the day off. And it's a fun thing. I mean, imagine me saying, heck, I want you to have a whole carb breakfast on Monday, and then I want you to switch over to a whole protein breakfast on Tuesday. And we've got vegan and vegetarian versions for everybody. But and, not okay if I have a cashew breakfast. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm going to segue to lifestyle, and I'm personally a big fan of this, and partly it's because I just don't have time in terms of exercise. So I love this concept. I'm all in, and you call it exercise snacking. So please tell us more about exercise snacking. Okay. So, yeah, most of us, we don't literally have the time for a 45 minute hour workout in the gym or an hour run or whatever. But there's really good research that shows that you don't need to do that, number one. It turns out the old idea that you have to walk a thousand steps was made up by a Japanese pedometer company to sell pedometers. And it has actually no basis in truth uh, or science. But you could divide periods of time into tiny, what I call exercise snacks. And 
they're easy to do. I've got a list of them. For instance, uh, this morning I was brushing my teeth. So what do I do when I'm brushing my teeth? I do deep knee bends, squats. I mean, you're not doing anything else. And so a couple minutes a day when you're brushing your teeth, you're doing an exercise snack while you're brushing your teeth. You're sitting there watching TV or you're listening to us. You do a few jumping jacks. Fascinatingly, you can walk up and down stairs for a minute, which isn't a whole lot of walking up stairs, and get the benefit of up to 10 minutes of sustained exercise. And this is, I mean, this is exciting news. The other thing, so many of us go looking for a snack to snack on out of boredom. And potentially hunger, but usually boredom. And what's exciting about exercise snacking is that little burst of energy that you produce produces these really cool new hormone cytokines that are called myokines, that myokines will, number one, cut your appetite, and number two, stimulate your mitochondria to make energy. And what happens when most people do an exercise snack, and maybe it's doing a plank for a minute, they'll notice that their presumed hunger that was leading them to go reach for a snack went away. And it's just a great way for a win-win. And so it, we talked about life, we're talking about lifestyle. You have to talk about sleep. I know we're both wearing our aura rings. So let's talk about sleep. And my whoop band. I got aura, whoop, and Fitbit. I'm in on steps. I'm in on everything. Personally, and, a and a polar. Yeah, you and I. I, I we, we got it all. And I, it's fun comparing them. Yeah, we could have a whole podcast on that. <laughs> and it's still, I, I think my take on wearables, personally, I, I'm fascinated. I, I believe in the concept of what you measure is what you end up managing. So I'm a big believer in that. And I, I think you, you take it and you leave it. Some, it's not perfect. Technology is not perfect. Correct. It's fascinating. Perfect. And it's all about, can you take, are there actionable insights? Can you actually take the number and actually do something with it and work with it and make it better? So that's my, my, my two cents. Yeah, we are, ask anybody, we are profoundly sleep deprived. There's lots of reasons for that. Among others is blue light. It's just a disaster for allowing you to sleep. And I and others have lots of tricks for that. But one of the things I come back to in the energy paradox that I think is really critically important, and I mentioned this in the longevity paradox, and Dale Bredesen makes a big deal out of this as well. We need to stop eating about three hours before we go to bed. What happens when we eat is huge amounts of blood is diverted down to our intestines for the purpose of digestion. Digestion is very expensive. And I mentioned this before, when I was growing up, my mother would not allow me to go swimming for an hour after I had breakfast or lunch because I'd get cramps and die. And there was actually some truth to that wise tale because your blood flow was diverted to your intestines, so your muscles would not get enough blood flow and cramp up. The same thing happens with our brain. Uh, our brain needs to go through a deep cleaning cycle, the glymphatic circulation. And that happens usually during deep sleep. And most of the time, if you follow your ring or your whoop band, deep sleep usually occurs early in the sleep cycle. And so you, if you're going into deep sleep, you gotta have more blood flow into your brain. And if the blood flow is diverted down into your gut, you're not gonna get that cleaning power. And that debris, those tau proteins, that amyloid protein should literally be washed out. And it doesn't happen. The second thing, just to continue, is most of us are, work from Sach Panda, from Salk Institute. Most of us, most Americans are eating 16 hours a day, literally from sunup to well into the night. And what's happened to our mitochondria, particularly in our brain, when they should undergo rest and repair, which is what sleep does, they're still being bombarded for three, four, maybe five hours with these stupid fuels that have no business being in our circulation. So in addition to avoiding blue light and eating on the early side, any other hacks to 
get to sleep at night? I actually am a very big fan of timed release melatonin. And it's easy to obtain whenever I'm changing time zones when I used to come and visit you in New York. <laughs> Live, I take time release melatonin to reset my circadian clock. There's also some fascinating work looking at, as most of your viewers and listeners know, we run on a circadian clock. All of our cells have a clock gene. We now know our microbiome has a circadian clock. And we cannot disrupt that circadian clock. Another trick, another hack of sleeping, and people aren't going to want to hear this, you cannot make up time over the weekend by sleeping in. And what it turns out, if let's suppose you get up at five o'clock every morning like I do, instead on the weekends you go, oh, I'm sleeping in till eight. This is great. Sleeping in till eight disrupts your time clock as if you change three time zones. And it disrupts your circadian rhythm. It disrupts your gut circadian rhythm. So sorry to tell folks, please get a dog. Dogs don't understand alarm clocks, and dogs will get you up with a circadian clock. And that's unfortunately how we get up. Or we, we have a, a four-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old. Yeah, you <laughs> Exactly. You see, it's interesting. They are actually in the rhythm of nature. And yeah. We, they are. And it's, like, yeah, it's uh, like they're trying to tell me something. I don't like what they're trying to tell yeah. me. But. Uh, the la last night, my, our, our four-year-old got up right when I was starting to experience. Not a good sleep score for me today, let's just say that. I'm curious, I, on melatonin in terms of the, the time release, which I'm also a big fan of, on a personal level, I'm curious how it, milligrams, what do you typically do or recommend? Because I know that so the dosages can widely vary in terms I've seen some people do one milligram, three milligram. I see people go all the way up to 10, which in my opinion, probably a little too much, but I'm curious. Yeah, I, so I do, I usually do three to five milligrams. Right. Uh, I have a number of patients who are addicted to sleep medication, which uh, I hope anyone knows is not actually inducing sleep and is doing incredible harm to your microbiome and your mitochondria, but that's another story. Sure. Those folks I will use up to 10 milligrams of time-release melatonin initially because, and I'll use all sorts of other tricks like L-theanine, like valerium. I do think relora is one of the greatest sleep compounds known to mankind. Relora, for anyone who's listening, is patented. It's a combination of magnolia bark extract and Ayurvedic herb called Felodendrum. And this stuff does not induce sleep. It does not put you to sleep. But it's one of the best reducers of cortisol. And it's actually got some longevity properties, and I take it every day. But when I'm getting somebody who I really need to start having normal sleep, I'll have them take 300 milligrams of uh, Relora three times a day and keep it in your hat trick. Yeah, I'll do uh, essentially our sleep product, magnesium, pharmagaba, and jujube. And then when I need the reset, I'll throw on some L-theanine. I'll, I'll do the time release melatonin at three milligrams. So we're sort of on the same page there. Magnesium is unbelievable. Yeah. Um, yeah, I get everyone on magnesium just as a starting point. We're so deficient in magnesium. 100% agreed. So for anyone listening, what are the non-negotiables? In terms of, I want to reclaim my energy right now. What, what are the three to five non-negotiables? Got to get started on them tomorrow. So one of the one of the first things that I really want everybody to try, and I'll take you through the steps in the book, is the more I can shorten your eating window, the time you start eating to the time you stop eating, the better your energy is going to be. And it seems paradoxical that the less access you have to energy producing food, the more energy you will have. Uh, it's, every study proves that this is true, and I go into it in geeky detail. And but what I don't want people to do is say, oh, Dr. Gundry says that you shouldn't, you should start eating at noon and stop eating at six. 
Yeah, I'd love for you to get there. I'm now in my 20th year of from January through June. I eat all my calories in a two-hour window, so that 22 out of 24 hours, I'm fasting. This is my 20th year of doing this, folks. And I actually, as far as I know, was the first person to write about time-restricted eating in 2006 in my first book, long before intermittent fasting came out. So that start, if you eat break fast at seven o'clock. Um, next week on Monday, eat it at eight o'clock. On Tuesday, eat it at nine o'clock. Thursday, eat it at 10 o'clock and so on. And then good news, take the weekend off. Go back to what you want to do. The next week, if you ate breakfast at eight o'clock, start at nine o'clock and proceed through the week. And so I have a six week program that will take your hand and slowly get you to where you really ought to be. And it's going to be one of the best effects on your overall energy and health that you can do. So that's... I, I love um, it. I love it. And so in closing, you're part of our functional nutrition coaching program. It's a fantastic program. It is so amazing to see all the interest in it. I think we're at a critical time in the world of well-being in 2021. And empowerment is a key message of the program. And so why is taking control of our health, in your opinion, more important than ever? We've, we've been through the ringer and we, modern medicine has unfortunately not kept up with our needs. We've been fed a bill of goods from every area, particularly from big agriculture. And you got to start with yourself. This has to come. This is a groundswell movement. And the thing I tell everybody who will listen, particularly in this book, is fatigue is not your fate. It is not something to accept. Ill health is not something to accept. And you individually have the power to change your life. I'm a living example of that. I'm now, you know, in my seventh decade and I see patients six days a week. I'm at Gundry MD on the seventh day. And I have more energy than I had, you know, when I was 46 years old and a big fat guy running 30 miles a week. It's, if I'm any example, and I'm, I'm just one, fatigue is not your fate. And take back your control. Amen, Dr. Gundry. Well, at least it's good to know I'm 46. I'm not a fat guy, so I feel good. If I could have as much energy and, and, and make it to my 70s and look like you, I'd be a very happy camper. Thank you for, for all that you do. Congrats on the book. Another fascinating read. I'm sure it will be another runaway bestseller. Congratulations. Well, thanks. I really hope everyone takes you up on your offer to sign up and get some help from all of us in the functional medicine, restorative medicine community. You guys are doing a great job. Thank you so much. As Dr. Gundry just talked about in this very podcast, nutrition plays a huge role in our overall well-being. And now's your chance to learn from the best in the world and take our landmark functional nutrition coaching program which gives you access to 19 of the world's top doctors and health coaching experts, including Dr. Gundry. The program has over 30 hours of instruction. These experts will give you a solid foundation in functional nutrition and teach you how to brand, market, and expand your wellness business. Now's your time to take your passion for wellness to the next level and turn it into a career. Enroll in our functional nutrition coaching program today. Visit mindbodygreen.com slash coaching and enter code GUNDRY300 to get $300 off.